the life of Jesus. It has been some 2,000 years since Jesus of Nazareth was born into this world. But the life that began so long ago touches us even to this day. Many of Jesus' teachings still dominate the Western world. And people everywhere, even non-believers, have been influenced by his moral and spiritual genius. The story of Jesus is told in the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where virtually everything known about him is written. Generations of scholars have devoted their lives to the Gospels, trying to understand why these four ancient books so often differ from one another. This is the story of his life as it can be reconstructed today. It is history, it is tradition, it is faith. All three interweave to tell the extraordinary story of Jesus. days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be counted and Joseph went from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem with Mary his betrothed who was with child She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. The Gospel of Luke. A newborn child nestles peacefully among the animals in a manger. An angel guides wandering shepherds to his crib. Wise men from the east follow a star to present the babe with precious gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So begins the life of Jesus of Nazareth, as Christian tradition tells it. But the beloved and majestic story of Christmas may contain as much sacred drama as historical reality. We have no eyewitness accounts for any of the events in the Gospels. The Gospels themselves don't claim to be written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, to the contrary, these four books are anonymous. Whoever wrote them didn't identify themselves. The tradition that they were written by these people emerged only decades after they were actually written by Christians, probably in the second or third generation after Jesus, near the end of the first century. you have a, an at least a 40-year gap between the life of Jesus and between the writing down of the Gospels. And the Gospel writers did not write in order to accurately record exactly what Jesus did, to record exactly what the economy was like, to record exactly what society was like. The reason they wrote was to convert people to their new faith, to convert people to Christianity. Long before Jesus was born, the Hebrew prophet Micah predicted that the Messiah, savior of the Jewish people, would be born in Bethlehem. 
Only two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, say Jesus was born there. The other two, Mark and John, do not mention his birthplace. Most historians believe that Jesus was probably born in Nazareth, sometime between the years 6 and 4 before the Common Era, and that his parents were, in fact, named Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary named their son Yeshua, a common Hebrew name in ancient times. In English, it means he who helps. The Gospels, which were written in Greek, turned Yeshua into Jesus. As the Gospels tell us, Yeshua was Joseph and Mary's firstborn child. He was certainly not their only child. Most of the Gospels mention Jesus and his brothers and even sisters. Paul mentions Jesus and his brothers. So there's really no doubt that he had brothers. Um, how many brothers uh, is up for grabs? At least two or three and probably a few sisters. So he comes from, um, for that time period, uh, a medium-sized Jewish family uh, where you would have five or six siblings. According to the Gospels, Jesus had four brothers named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, as well as sisters whose names have been lost. After Jesus' death, one of his brothers, James, would become a leader of the Christian movement and also suffer death. As Jesus, James, and their brothers and sisters grew up together, none of them could have predicted the dramatic days that lay ahead. There's nothing mysterious about Jesus growing up. He grew up like every other Jewish boy. Uh, he grew up uh, first with the women, then with the men. He went to school. Uh, he learned to trade. We are told that his father was a carpenter. We're told in one place that he himself was a carpenter. We assume, therefore, he was an artisan and therefore lived somewhere in the, in the what we might call the middle class. 2,000 years ago, middle class was not what it is today. In Jesus' time, there were very few wealthy families and a huge number of poor ones. Middle-class families were simply not quite as poor as others. They lived in often one or two room, what we would call hovels, clean, but nevertheless quite small. They walked everywhere. They essentially had one suit of clothes um, they lived a substance, a subsistence existence. One famine could cost the lives of many people in any village. Like most people in the ancient... I'll never use another pair of protective underwear again. Right now, you can qualify for a free box. All you have to do is just take a quick quiz, which will help you get fitted. I used to wake up to a wet bed all the time, and I'd have leaks in the most inconvenient places. It was just so embarrassing. But now... Because Market relieved so much of this stress, and I can go out in public without having to even think about it. And I'm not the only one. Barbara said, I am very happy with my Because underwear, and it's so convenient to have them delivered to my door. Carol said, Because is comfortable, strong, and very absorbent. The best underwear, and I have tried so many. And Roy said, because gives me the confidence to know my bed is safe at night, this is now a crucial product in my life. If you want to regain your freedom and self-esteem, 
All you have to do is click the link in the description, take the quiz. It only takes a few minutes and you can get a free box shipped directly to your front door today. So click the link below and claim your free box of this life-changing product today. California homeowners, if you are sick of paying too much money for electric bills and you have a mirror that looks like this in your home, you can get paid today to switch to solar at no cost to you. It costs literally nothing to get the solar installed. You're not going to spend a dime out of pocket to go solar. And the best part is when you do have the solar panels, this meter, it'll actually run backwards and credit you on your electric bill so you don't have to make a bill payment ever again. Okay, so if you're looking to save $100, $200, or even $500 per month on your electric costs, click the link in this video right now. This program is first come, first serve, and it is expiring very, very soon. And these subsidies are being phased out. This whole program is actually sponsored by government and tax incentives. So the best part about it is when you do qualify for this, you will get paid thousands and thousands of dollars back on your taxes and on your tax return just for switching to solar, switching to solar energy, and it's not going to be a cost at all to you out of pocket, okay? So click the link in this video, see if your home qualifies. You can still watch the video you came here to watch. We're just going to open up another window and we're going to ask you a couple quick questions to make sure your home qualifies because not all homes qualify, unfortunately, and that is the catch to this. Not every home qualifies, but fortunately, if you're seeing this video, you're probably in an area where your home may qualify. So click the link right now. Let's see if your home qualifies. And let's save you some money with solar. world, Jesus probably spent his entire childhood where he was born, in Nazareth. Almost nothing is known about his first 25 years. The Gospels are mostly silent. How Jesus grew up as a child, where he went to school, what his teenage years were like, these would be things that we might be interested in, but they were things that the ancients cared nothing at all about. The Gospel of Luke does tell one famous story about Jesus as a precocious 12-year-old when he accompanied his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? The Gospel of Luke. Jesus' life simply wasn't important to people until he began proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. After they were interested in him, then they went back and created some stories about his earlier life. And Luke's story of Jesus in the temple is a tale like that. The Gospel's lack of information about Jesus' childhood has led to endless speculations about his so-called lost years, that period between ages 12 and 26, not described in any of the Gospels. Some believe that during the lost years, Jesus journeyed throughout the world, acquiring extraordinary spiritual powers. Some people believe that he went to northern India, where he studied with Buddhist monks in the Himalayas. Others say he traveled to Celtic England and lived with the Druids. Still others believe he meditated in a monastery in Japan. Most biblical scholars are convinced that these stories of the lost years are products of popular imagination. 
Is it possible that Jesus of Nazareth could have gone to northern India? Well, sure. People have been going back and forth across that area ever since Alexander the Great. You know, you just didn't do it on the weekend, but it could be done, right? So it's possible. Is it plausible? Or is it even necessary that Jesus should go to Kashmir? Absolutely not. Everything that we find in the Jesus tradition, we can understand as, as coming out of the deep roots of the Judaism in which he grew up. So as a historian, we'd have to say, sure, he could have done it, but we don't, want, we, we don't have any reason to say that he went and learned his nonviolence from the Buddhists. But even if Jesus did not wander the earth, his life story has. Artistic creations from around the world show that over the centuries, the life of Jesus has touched the hearts of people everywhere. The lost Jews of Jesus are aptly named because we know nothing about them. We can only surmise what his life would have been like during those years. And based on our reconstructions of Galilee, we can see that he would have probably apprenticed with his family. He would have learned a skill. Uh, the Gospels refer to Jesus as a tectone, which we erroneously, I think, render carpenter, should be called stonecutter or mason or construction worker. He was probably someone who worked with stone, which was ubiquitous throughout Lower Galilee. Galilee, its rugged hills, its rocky fields, and its great lake, called the Sea of Galilee, would shape the young stoneworker's life and soul, and perhaps inspire him on his extraordinary path. 2,000 years ago, Galilee was not the simple land of shepherds imagined in biblical tradition. Galilee was a complex, dynamic, turbulent region, a place where rural conservative Jews found themselves literally face to face with the vibrant pagan cultures of Greece and Rome. The mighty Roman Empire had swallowed up the Near East a few decades earlier and had placed Herod Antipas, son of the infamous King Herod the Great, in charge of the Galilee. Although Herod was Jewish, he ruled only with the consent of Rome. Herod Antipas knew how to keep his imperial masters happy. He stifled every hint of public discontent and collected a heavy burden of taxes. The Roman presence, it was a firm hand. If you didn't pay your taxes, or if you started a rebellion, uh, it would crush you without mercy. But if you did those two basic things, pay your taxes and not talk about rebellion, uh, almost anything else was acceptable to them. Some Jews did talk about rebellion and formed guerrilla units called zealots to harass the Romans. Others, fearful of Roman power, tried to get by as best they could. Most were humiliated by the submission of their proud ancient nation to foreign pagan masters. These currents of discontent and frustration swirled about Galilee as Jesus of Nazareth grew up. Perhaps he also witnessed the mighty works of the charismatic healers and prophets 
who frequented the Galilean hills. Our image today of Galilee is an area of strong Jewish piety and a lot of emphasis on what we might call the, the holy person. In other traditions, the shaman, the, uh, the person who uh, has a unique experience of God and then has both acts and words of power that derive from that. That seems relatively common in Galilean way of being Jewish. From Nazareth, the young Jesus could also see the great city of Sepphoris, only an hour's walk away. Sepphoris was Herod Antipas's capital, a splendid city of 20,000 people, many of them Greek and Roman pagans. It boasted a theater and a racetrack called a hippodrome. Caravans brought goods from around the empire to trade in its bazaars. For the young Jesus, Sepphoris may have been a window on the great world which lay beyond his tiny village. The city of Sepphoris was destroyed in the early part of the first century and then rebuilt. And there was a massive building program conducted during probably Jesus' early teenage, early adult years. Now, it's within easy walking distance of Nazareth. And a number of people have speculated that in his younger years, Jesus would have gone with Joseph to participate in the building program. I mean, you had Greeks who came for architecture, Romans who came for engineering. You had artists from all over Asia Minor who came. So it's quite possible that in his early years, Jesus had a very cosmic... Tonight, I'll be eating the pork by me with extra jalapenos. Thanks, baby. Yeah, we about to get spicy for this virtual day. Spicy like them pajama pants. Hey, the camera is staying up here. This is not the second date. It's my pollen experience. Personality and his passionate conviction that all people should live in peace with one another. All that is known is that sometime in early adulthood, the Galilean stoneworker, Jesus of Nazareth, had a tremendous religious experience which changed his life and propelled him toward his incredible destiny. Presiding over that experience was a brooding, mysterious figure called John the Baptist. Sometime around the year 26 of the Common Era, when he was about 30 years old, Jesus of Nazareth left his native village and traveled south to the desert lands of Judea. When Jesus next saw Galilee, he would no longer be a village stoneworker. He would be a wandering prophet who healed the sick and preached a powerful, radical message. As Jesus traveled toward Judea, he was not yet the charismatic teacher he was soon to become. He had gone in search of the most famous and controversial holy man in all of Israel. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then there went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
the Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptizer is a person who believes that the end of the world is, the end of the social world at least, is coming very soon. He cannot imagine how human beings on their own could dig out of the deep trough uh, of evil in which they are presently mired. And so he says it's coming soon, but those of you who want to get ready can. Burdened by Roman taxes and ruled by Roman soldiers, despairing Jews of Jesus' time hoped for a new king to restore their once proud nation. They called their savior the Messiah, God's anointed one, sanctified with holy oil like the mighty kings of Israel's past. Some may have called the Messiah by his Greek name, Christos, or the Christ. No one agreed on who he was, human, divine, or both. A certain amount of Jews expected no Messiah whatever. Others might have expected a heavenly figure to come down from heaven. Others thought in terms of a new king like David, a much more earthly figure. Some expected a renewed life in this world. Others thought perhaps more in terms of a heavenly world. To the Romans and their puppet king Herod, any dream of God's new kingdom and its royal messiah sounded dangerously rebellious. John the Baptist made things even more volatile by announcing that the kingdom and the Christ were about to appear on earth. As all men were in expectation whether perhaps he were the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Gospel of Luke. Into this religious and political tinderbox came the 30-year-old Jesus of Nazareth. Somewhere on the banks of the Jordan River, he encountered John and became his disciple. When we start as historians to try to isolate those facts which are really indisputable out of the life of the historical Jesus, one of the ones that is right there at the beginning is Jesus' relationship to John. In this sense, that the Christian sources report that Jesus goes to John to be baptized. Now, if the Christians had been making that up, that of course it would have been the other way around, that they would have had John coming to Jesus. But Jesus goes to John, and as we try to reconstruct it, it seems quite clear that for some space of time, Jesus is really in John's entourage. John baptized Jesus as he baptized all his followers, but Jesus' baptism was like no other. And when he had come out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Gospel of Mark. It is not known whether anyone else saw the heavenly vision, but for Jesus, the baptism by John was a life-changing epiphany. When the young Galilean first discovered what he considered his special relationship with God. Jesus is getting baptized for the same reasons that other people are getting baptized, which many historians would argue. Then Jesus has 
had some feeling of repentance. Jesus has been moved by John's ministry and has been baptized for the repentance of sins and uh, has some kind of transforming experience uh, that then leads him to inaugurate his own public ministry, uh, in part modeled and fashioned after the ministry of John the Baptist. Before Jesus could begin his mission, he had to reconcile his own fragile humanity with the immense power he believed bestowed upon him by God. He had to leave humanity and wander in the wilderness, there to face the perils of the desert and confront the temptations of the soul. The wilderness of Judea, a waterless desert virtually empty of life. Around the year 27, when he was about the age of 30, Jesus of Nazareth abandoned humanity and wandered through this desolate land, brooding on the powerful vision which had just transformed his life, a vision which had proclaimed him to be the beloved Son of God. The Gospels tell us that Jesus did not go to the wilderness by choice, that he was propelled into the desert by the Spirit of God, which held him in its irresistible grip. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The Gospel of Mark. The wilderness is, is, in Jewish tradition, a very uh, auspicious place to meet God. And this goes back to the stories of Moses, who meets God in, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, and then the wanderings in the wilderness, and many prophets withdraw into the wilderness to meet God. These were people who would go out into the wilderness, and they would fast, and they would have visions, and they would come back and tell people what God, what God intended. Probably the closest analogy today would be to look at what happens in something like Native American religions or in African religions, where you have this kind of holy figure who has special access to God, who then shares this with the people. God would not be the only power Jesus would encounter in the desert. Lurking in its emptiness was the great demon of worldly greed and weakness, who could challenge his faith and shake his soul. Before he could return to humanity and preach the word of God, Jesus had to conquer temptation. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. And the tempter came and said unto him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Gospel of Matthew. The temptation of Jesus is often misinterpreted as if Jesus is being tempted by sin. The Greek word means really that the testing of Jesus, just as we test a metal to see if it's solid or to see if it's uh, genuine. Jesus is being tested. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, 
All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The Gospel of Luke. He has to start making choices, and he sets the course of his life that he's going to set himself against the devil, against the works of the devil, against the deceptions of the devil. And we see that worked out in many ways in his teaching, in his miracles, in his exorcisms, all the way through his life. It seems that his, his mental world was one not only of the human sphere, but of, of unseen forces that ruled the cosmos, that there was a real battle going on, and he was a major player. Emerging from the wilderness at the end of 40 days, victorious in his combat with temptation, Jesus was ready to part company with John the Baptist and proclaim his own unique vision of the kingdom of God. But as he re-entered society, he heard some shocking, frightening news. Herod Antipas had arrested John the Baptist, whose unassailable virtue and spreading popularity had made him too threatening to be ignored. For Jesus, John's arrest was an ominous warning of what befell radical prophets in the domains of Herod and Rome. The Gospels say that when he heard of John's arrest, Jesus left Judea immediately and returned to Galilee, leaving the unfamiliar, dangerous territory of the South for family, friends, and home. As he began his mission back in Galilee, Jesus was to learn some painful lessons and discover that his transforming experience of God had made him an outcast from many who once had been his neighbors. No one knows precisely when Jesus of Nazareth returned to Galilee. It may have been in the summer of the year 27. Whenever it was that he returned from Judea, Jesus must have seen his homeland with new eyes. He had left Galilee a peasant craftsman who, like so many others, earned his living by the skill of his hands. He returned as a visionary with an urgent spiritual mission, a mission made all the more pressing by the arrest of John the Baptist. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel of Mark. Elsewhere around the world, other spiritual movements were developing as Jesus preached his message in the Galilee. A follower of Buddha, the Indian Emperor Ashoka was building the great shrine of Sanchi, soon to be visited by thousands of devout pilgrims. In Britain, Celtic priests called Druids were teaching that the human soul was immortal, reborn at death in the body of a newborn child. In Mexico, the people of Teotihuacan were constructing massive pyramids dedicated to the sun and the moon the largest buildings in the Americas until Europeans arrived some 1,500 years later. 
And to the north, the Hopewell Indians were piling up sacred burial mounds shaped like huge serpents, which can still be seen in what is now southern Ohio. Jesus lost no time in beginning his new life's work as an itinerant, inspired prophet and teacher, following the ancient Jewish tradition of Moses, Isaiah, and John the Baptist. But having grown up near the multicultural cities of Galilee, Jesus may have encountered some pagan traditions as well. In the broader Greco-Roman world, we also have other philosophers who are wandering around trying to convince people to adopt new ways of life. Uh, Jesus has probably seen these people come through some of these cities, uh, so that it's not an unheard of way of life. It's just very unusual and very threatening. It soon became painfully clear how threatening the new Jesus was to those who remembered the old one. When he returned to Nazareth, he proclaimed his mission in the synagogue he had attended as a child. Yet his reunion with Nazareth would prove to be a disaster. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many that heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get all this? What is the wisdom given to him? What mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Luke relates that Jesus' fellow Nazarenes actually dragged him from the synagogue to a nearby cliff, intending to throw him over it. Jesus managed to escape from them. Before he left Nazareth, he told his jeering neighbors, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. As far as we know, Jesus never returned to Nazareth. His own community had rejected him. It would be from among strangers that he would build a new community, a community of disciples bound together by its faith in him. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting their net into the sea. There were fishermen, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The Gospel of Matthew. The disciples are in some way unusual, because what was typical in first century Palestine was for uh, a disciple, as it were, to seek out a teacher, to seek out a rabbi. But we don't really have a lot of evidence of maverick rabbis going around and collecting groups of disciples. So in that respect, Jesus is rather unusual. I think unlike some of the uh, you know, films about Jesus, where you almost get the sense that uh, Jesus is calling what I like to say zombie disciples, and he says, follow me, and they get up and they you know, follow him. I think one has to presume that Jesus has prior relationships with these folks, that he knows these folks, that he's had contact with them. With his first disciples, Jesus walked along the seashore to the town of Capernaum, 
where he entered the local synagogue and addressed the people gathered there. This time, it was an instant success. The synagogue crowd felt his passionate conviction and marveled at his extraordinary power over evil. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. The Gospel of Mark. By evening, a huge crowd of the sick and demon-possessed had gathered before the house in Capernaum where Jesus was staying. Everyone in town was there, watching to see if the new holy man would perform another miracle. The Gospels say that Jesus did perform miracles that night, that he healed the crowds of the sick and cast out demons from all who were possessed. As the sun rose the next morning, he left the crowds and went into the hills to pray and to be alone. From now until the last day of his life, he would never be alone. From now on, Jesus of Nazareth would pursue a mission that would change the world and cost him his life. No one knows how old Jesus of Nazareth was when he began his mission. The Gospel of Luke says he was 30. The Gospel of John implies that he was older. Nor do we know exactly how long his mission lasted. It may have been as brief as a few months or as long as four years. From Galilee, he traveled with his disciples as far north as the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon and the Syrian town of Caesarea Philippi, east into the territory of the Decapolis to the cities of Gadara and Gerasa, south to Jericho, and finally Jerusalem. Wherever he went, his reputation grew. His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and Jerusalem, and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The Gospel of Matthew. What drew so many different kinds of people to follow Jesus? Most came at first to witness his power the spiritual power which healed the sick, cast out demons, and performed miracles, the changing of water into wine, the feeding of multitudes with a few loaves and fishes, walking on water, and raising the dead. These miracles are central to Christian belief in the divinity of Jesus. They are also the most controversial episodes of his life. To modern believers, the miracles of Jesus remain indisputable and crucial events. 
to modern skeptics, they are merely later inventions of popular imagination. But scholars believe that whatever happened, Jesus' followers were genuinely convinced that he had supernatural power. question that Jesus did acts of power that impressed his contemporaries. We think of the world as uh, operating by natural law, and so a miracle would have to be sometime that, that God or some divine power stepped in and changed the laws, as it were, so that, so that uh, things didn't work the way they should work. The ancients didn't have a concept of natural law like that. God did everything. God made the sun come up in the morning. God made it rain. Uh, or made it not rain, and so those things were controlled by prayer and divine forces. Everything was, and so a miracle wasn't a violation of the laws of nature. It was simply God doing something special at a unique time. When people were healed, people noticed that, and they were impressed, and they thought of Jesus as a person of power. While reports of healings and miracles attracted followers, it was Jesus' teachings that compelled them to stay. They were teachings deeply rooted in Jewish moral traditions. Like John the Baptist and earlier prophets, Jesus preached compassion for others and concern for the poor and loving one's neighbor as oneself. But Jesus went much further than earlier prophets and Jewish scripture. He proclaimed a new vision of life, a new way of being, which offered love even to those who hate. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus broke Jewish dietary laws. He ate with Gentiles, tax collectors, and other disreputable persons. His famous story of the Good Samaritan, who comes to the aid of a Jew when other Jews will not, must have shocked his followers who had been taught from birth that their Samaritan neighbors were inferior. And in the patriarchal culture of ancient Israel, his acceptance of women into his movement was positively scandalous. These women ranged from all social strata. Our image is that Jesus attracted all these prostitutes, but that's uh, not accurate. There were prostitutes attracted to Jesus. There were ordinary uh, people, uh, housewives, as it were, wealthy women, uh, including uh, one woman who is the uh, wife of Herod's steward, that is Herod's bookkeeper, as it were. Uh, his wife becomes one of Jesus' followers and is said to, have, to support him. Jesus' most famous female follower was Mary Magdalene. The Gospels portray her as a sufferer possessed by seven evil demons. Jesus exercises all seven and 
Mary Magdalene becomes his devoted disciple. The Gospels do not say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, as later tradition claimed. But in Jesus' time, any woman who left home to follow even a holy man risked a bad reputation. Some of them actually travel with Jesus, which is a shocking thing to do. I mean, women are supposed to protect the family honor, not to be with other men, and certainly not to leave home without your husband or some male guardian going with you. So these are all kinds of countercultural, shocking, anti-family kinds of things that we see Jesus doing with women. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they said to him, In the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Jesus said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast the first stone. They went away one by one, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus said to her, Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Gospel of John. At the heart of his preaching was a powerful, radical idea that however they may judge one another, all people were equal in the eyes of God. The vision of, of God which Jesus has is one of what can best be described as radical egalitarianism, a refusal to draw discriminations and hierarchies and lines of demarcation separating this one from that one, lower from higher, pure from impure, male from female, slave from fee, from free, pagan from Jew. It's a refusal to accept the basic distinctions which most people in his society accept. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The Gospel of Matthew. His road was hard, and the burden of his vision was often lonely. The Gospels tell of his angry impatience when his disciples failed to understand his teachings. In one story, his family fears for his sanity and attempts to take him home. Jesus refuses to speak to them. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking around on those who sat about him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus seems to have been willing to leave his family. This is a, this is a very uh, radical, immoral thing to do in Jesus' time uh, because the son had responsibilities to the father and the mother and the family, especially if he's an older son. Uh, but Jesus is willing to abandon all of that in order to uh, do what he thinks God is calling him to do. I think this notion of a kind of meek and mild Jesus who always talks in a soft voice and 
I think that has l very little ground in reality. I think you have to see him as somebody who is simply possessed by this zeal, possessed by the spirit in the sense of mission and purpose. Uh, otherwise, I don't think he would have established the following that he did, nor caused the trouble uh, that he caused. I think that the core of Jesus as a preacher, uh, minister, as it were, is that he is trying to call people to a different kind of understanding of God, a different relationship with God and with one another. And then in particular, he's reacting against the purity system of the day. He's reacting against, uh, in some degree, the role of the temple uh, that it played in, in Judaism in the first century. Jesus was beginning to make powerful enemies among the Pharisees, interpreters of Jewish law. They believed the path to righteousness lay in the strictest possible observance of Judaism, which governed every aspect of life. But in the name of compassion, Jesus interpreted the law as he saw fit, whether the Pharisees agreed or not. He entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would try to heal on the Sabbath. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Gospel of Mark. Now the Pharisees would begin to harass Jesus, trying to prove that he was a blasphemer which would condemn him to death under Jewish law. Some would try to prove he was a revolutionary, which would cause the merciless fist of Rome to come down upon him. Jesus refused to take their bait. And they came and said to him, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said, Bring me a coin and let me look at it. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. They were amazed at him. The Gospel of Mark. Even as Jesus confounded his enemies and more people joined his movement, he knew that his world was becoming a more dangerous place. And then suddenly, a dreadful murder led him to make the most fateful decision of his career. As Jesus of Nazareth was preaching and healing throughout the Galilee, John the Baptist was languishing in King Herod's desert fortress of Macarius, east of the Jordan River. Herod feared John too much to set him free. When Herod saw the crowds around John and saw his eloquence, he knew that whatever John asked them to do, they would do. And rather than wait for them to revolt, he decided to get rid of John right away before it was too late. 
History has given us two versions of John's execution. The Gospels say that John died to satisfy the anger of Herodias, Herod's wife, who hated him because he had declared her marriage to Herod unlawful. When Herod refused to kill John out of respect for his holiness, Herodias resorted to a cruel trick. She sent her daughter Salome to dance before Herod and his friends. Pleased with Salome's performance, Herod swore an oath to give her whatever she desired. Salome answered as her mother had told her, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod was horrified, but had to grant her request. John the Baptist was beheaded, and his head was brought to Salome. So say the Gospels. But the ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells a different story. According to his account, Herod simply murdered John out of fear that he would incite the people to rebel against him and against Rome. The Gospels say that John's disciples buried his body, then hurried to Galilee and told Jesus the dreadful news. The, the first most traumatic moment in Jesus' adult life must have been the death of John the Baptist. If you had accepted John's message, which Jesus clearly had, and God let John be killed. God did nothing. And day after day after day, after John's death, God still did nothing until some point Jesus knew that God was not going to do anything and that therefore, in one sense, John was wrong. When Jesus learned of John's murder, he tried to be alone. The Gospels tell us that he got into a boat with his disciples and sailed to a lonely place across the Sea of Galilee. Yet he could not be alone. Great crowds followed him, bringing the sick to be healed, and he did not refuse them. As he continued his mission, Jesus must have been aware that he might be the next to suffer imprisonment, perhaps even death. According to the Gospels, news of Jesus' powers and popularity had already reached an anxious King Herod and his court. Some of Herod's advisors thought Jesus might be the prophet Elijah, whose return was long awaited by the Jews. Herod was convinced that Jesus was none other than John the Baptist, risen from the grave and returned to earth. Facing almost certain doom, Jesus powerfully reaffirms his vision and his mission and accepts his inevitable fate. Not long after John's murder comes a stunning revelation. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And a voice said, 
This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. The Gospel of Matthew. What it seems to be is clearly an epiphany, a revelation that Jesus is really some kind of a divine being. And for a moment, he reveals who he really is. This, for the ancients, of course, was perfectly normal. Uh, the gods could walk on earth. Zeus could, in a flash, show himself to be Zeus, as opposed to whatever form he happened to be taking. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The Gospel of Matthew. that Jesus knew that he had a choice before him, that he could go to Jerusalem and die, uh, or he could turn away. He was warned. He chooses to go to Jerusalem. He chooses to provoke the authorities. He would not back down from his program, from his, his teaching, his preaching, his stand for what he felt was just. For Jesus, the path was now clear. He would no longer keep to the high and lonely places of Galilee. He would no longer wander among the villages and small towns, debating with Pharisees and avoiding the authorities who would have silenced him. Jesus would carry his mission to the heart of his faith and into the stronghold of his enemies. He would go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, holy city of the Jews, home of Solomon's great temple, central sanctuary of the Jewish faith. In the days of Jesus of Nazareth, Jews from all over the Roman Empire made an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the great festival of Passover which commemorated their ancient deliverance from the tyrannical pharaoh of Egypt. Sometime around the year 30 CE, Jesus of Nazareth came to Jerusalem for Passover. The Gospels say he rode a donkey colt into the city, surrounded by cheering crowds who lay clothing and tree branches in his path to honor him. Those who went before him and those who followed cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that is coming. The Gospel of Mark. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Gospel of Luke. By entering Jerusalem as the Messiah, Jesus placed himself in the gravest possible danger. The Passover feast was especially a tinderbox situation because it had the crowds in one place celebrating their deliverance by God from Egyptian oppression when here and now they were under Roman oppression. It probably took very little to start 
a riot in such a situation. Some people believe that he, when he went there, he expected to encounter a final battle and God would rescue him and bring the kingdom of God. Other people uh, thought he was going there uh, in order to die, sort of a, a death wish, a martyr wish. Uh, I suspect Jesus went back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee several times, and that in this climactic time, he went like he did at every other time, to participate in the festival and to make whatever impact he could on the people that come to the festival. But at this time, the machinery of destruction is at work, and he winds up being killed. He's quite consciously making something of his entrance in Jerusalem, perhaps sensing that this is the last time, that he is quite consciously seeking a final confrontation with the leaders in the spiritual capital. Either accept me or reject me, this is it, boys. Once in Jerusalem, Jesus lost no time antagonizing those in power. Not content with his provocative entry into the city, he immediately attacked the very center of religious authority, the temple. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? you have made it a den of robbers. The Gospel of Mark. The way the temple worked is that people would bring sacrificial animals to the priests and the priests would sacrifice them. And so there were people selling animals. Now the question is, why does he overthrow these tables and uh, the money changers tables and drive out those who are selling animals? It's possible that when Jesus went into the temple, he wanted to enact a parable by overthrowing tables and by causing a ruckus. He is symbolizing the future destruction of the temple when God acts in judgment uh, for his people. I think that this is probably what leads to Jesus' death because he is, he's making a proclamation against the temple and its leaders. The temple leaders were the priestly class called the Sadducees. Members came from Jerusalem's wealthiest aristocratic families. As religious and civic leaders, the Sadducees worked closely with the Romans to ensure that Passover remained peaceful. They were not sympathetic to radical prophets from the hills of Galilee, especially prophets who attacked the temple. It was now two days before the Passover at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be a tumult of the people. The Gospel of Mark. The Gospels say that after the incident in the temple, Jesus spent his days preaching to the multitudes in Jerusalem. At night, he withdrew from the city to the nearby Mount of Olives, across from the temple and the city walls. To his followers, he spoke of a violent apocalypse which would soon destroy the temple and all the nations of the world. After the apocalypse would come the last judgment, when the Messiah would return to usher in the kingdom. 
kingdom of heaven on earth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The Gospel of Matthew. While Jesus preached the glorious justice of the heavenly kingdom to come, he already knew that betrayal and suffering awaited him on earth. Then one of the twelve, who is called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. From that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The Gospel of Matthew. The opportunity could not wait. Jerusalem was filling with people. The Sadducees wanted Jesus out of the way before his teachings started a riot. Passover was Friday. As the sun set on Thursday, Jesus called his disciples together. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Gospel of Luke. revealed the shocking news that one of the twelve would betray him. As the horrified disciples stared at one another, Judas Iscariot asked, Is it I, Lord? Jesus replied, You have said so. Jesus knew his hour was at hand. The Gospels say that after supper, he brought the disciples to the Mount of Olives. There, he revealed another troubling glimpse of the future. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Peter declared to him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Gospel of Matthew. Peter and the other disciples protested that they would never abandon their teacher. They could not foresee what would happen that night. Jesus led them on into a garden called Gethsemane. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The Gospel of Matthew. 
Three times Jesus prayed to God to spare him from the agony to come. Three times he found the disciples sleeping instead of keeping watch. But as he began to scold them for the third time, he suddenly stopped. And he said to them, It is enough. The hour has come. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The Gospel of Mark. The disciples turned to see Judas Iscariot approaching, leading a crowd of armed men. Judas walked up to Jesus and kissed him on the cheek. It was a signal to the men behind him. Immediately they moved forward and laid hands on Jesus. One of the disciples drew his sword and cut off an attacker's ear. Jesus stopped him. Against his abductors, he responded only with ironic words. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The Gospel of Mark. The prophet who had healed the sick, walked on water, and raised the dead, allowed himself to be led away to almost certain death. And as he had foretold, his disciples fled in terror. Under cover of darkness, the men who arrest Jesus bring him down from the Mount of Olives and back inside the walls of Jerusalem. They hurry him through the narrow streets of the sleeping city to the house of Caiaphas, high priest of the temple, where his enemies are waiting for him. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the elders and the scribes were assembled. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. Gospel of Mark. As he listened to the lies of false witnesses, Jesus must have known that his interrogators would find whatever evidence they needed to condemn him. His teachings and his actions were inspiring too many followers, making too many enemies. Suddenly, Caiaphas asked Jesus, Are you the Christ? the Messiah, the Son of God? The Gospels disagree about what Jesus replied. According to Mark, Jesus proclaimed that he was the Messiah. According to Matthew, Jesus told Caiaphas, you have said so. And in Luke's account, he answers, if I tell you, you will not believe. But the Gospels agree that whatever Jesus answered, it was the answer Caiaphas was looking for. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, 
Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spat in his face, struck him. Some slapped him, saying, Prophesy, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is condemned for committing a blasphemy, but so far as we can tell, there was no blasphemy committed. It was not a blasphemy to say, I am the Messiah. That would be comparable to me saying, I'm the President of the United States. It might be ridiculous, but it's not a punishable offense. We have other Jewish people uh, from uh, a, a range of time periods who claim to be the Messiah or who were thought to be the Messiah. And that was no blasphemy. The Messiah was to be the great king. And so it's somebody claiming to be the king. That's not a blasphemy. The Jewish leaders had difficulties with Jesus for reasons of their own. They found Jesus probably to be offensive because he's saying that God's going to judge them and their temple. They find him a threat in that if he gets the crowds to follow him, then they aren't going to follow the Jewish leaders. And so they decide that Jesus must be taken out of the way. Having condemned Jesus to death for claiming to be the Messiah, the Jewish leaders faced another problem. How to execute him? Only Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had the power to execute criminals. But Caiaphas and his friends knew how to get Pilate's attention. They had worked out an arrangement with the Romans whereby they would administer the local religious government under the Romans so that they had a responsibility to keep order. And a, a Messiah, someone claiming to be Messiah, would upset that order. A Messiah, by definition... Did you know that you can make money from YouTube without creating videos? That's right. You can use other people's videos to make money from YouTube. Allow me to explain. You see, these products and app companies will create what's called... Time. The Romans apparently were not terribly uh, concerned about the the fine point of whether the kingdom of God was a heavenly entity or a worldly entity. You said the word king, you think you're a king, you are going to be crucified. From the house of Caiaphas, the high priest's men dragged Jesus across Jerusalem to the residence of Pontius Pilate. They tell Pilate that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. However, as Jesus stands before Pilate, events take an unexpected turn. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no crime in this man. Behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. The Gospel of Luke. I do not presume any trial before Caiaphas or any dialogue in which Pilate is discussing with Jesus. Nor, of course, that there was a crowd outside 
shouting crucify him when Pilate was saying he's innocent, I want to let him go. That is Christian fiction, writing the story years later. The Gospels say that Pontius Pilate offered a choice to the crowd which gathered outside his residence. In honor of Passover, Rome would release one prisoner. Jesus of Nazareth, so-called King of the Jews, or the murderer and guerrilla fighter called Barabbas. The crowd roared its answer. They all cried out together, Release to us Barabbas. Pilate addressed them once more. What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. The Gospel of Luke. The idea of the crowd shouting down Pilate is quite inconceivable to me. This reads to me like Christian propaganda. It is the early sect, the Jewish sect of Christians saying to themselves, we think the enemy is the Jewish authorities and we think the Roman authorities are better to go with. We will play to the Roman authorities. Some scholars believe that what actually happened to Jesus on the last night of his life might have been very different from the dramatic stories of the Gospels. Jesus' fate may have been decided in a tragically brief and routine procedure. I would presume that there were standing orders for the soldiers and agreements between Caiaphas and Pilate of what to do with anyone who causes trouble at Passover in the temple. Caiaphas and Pilate would say, don't ask silly questions. You know what to do with a peasant who causes trouble to the temple. You kill him. You execute him. Do you have to come back and ask us? No. It probably goes up no higher up the chain of command than a centurion or something like that. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him. Weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat upon him and struck him on the head and led him away to crucify him. The Gospel of Matthew. One last time he was led through Jerusalem along the street which would later be called the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrow, to a hill just outside the city walls. The name of this hill struck fear into the hearts of all in Jerusalem. Its name was Golgotha, the place of the skull. It was the hill of crucifixion. Jesus of Nazareth probably went to his death in the year 30. In that year, he would have been about 33 years old. 
When he entered Jerusalem, he was the charismatic leader of a growing religious movement, surrounded by disciples and crowds of devoted followers. But as he advanced toward Golgotha on that Passover day, he was alone. The disciples would have realized that if they've been subscribing to this teaching of Jesus and they've arrested Jesus, that uh, they themselves are in danger. They appear to have fled. We don't know uh, exactly where they went. The earliest traditions say that they stayed in Jerusalem and went into hiding. According to the Bible, only one disciple, Peter, followed Jesus as he was taken away. When people recognized him as a disciple of Jesus, Peter vehemently denied it. The next morning, Peter remembered Jesus' prediction that he would deny him and wept bitterly. While Peter wept, Judas Iscariot returned to the temple. He flung down the 30 pieces of silver at the feet of the priests who had paid him to betray his teacher. And filled with remorse, he hanged himself. and abandoned by his followers, Jesus was nailed to a cross, the most horrible death ever devised in the ancient world. The Romans would take uh, stakes and drive them through the, uh, the wrist bone uh, rather than through the hands, as in uh, popular imagination, uh, through the wrist bone so that uh, when the person then was hung on the cross, it wouldn't rip out. It, it would be fixed to the cross. They wouldn't be lifted far up, as is sometimes imagined, but probably just enough to get off, off the ground uh, and left there as a spectacle to, to everybody uh, to see. The death came by suffocation as the lungs would uh, elongate. Uh, a person then, in order to breathe, would have to pull up or else push up on the stake uh, through the feet, or else possibly sit on the ledge. Uh, and a person could hold on as long as his strength held out. We have cases of crucifixion lasting three or four days. Historians are convinced that whatever may be legend in the Gospels, the crucifixion was all too real. By condemning Jesus to this humiliating horror, the Romans left no doubt that the young teacher from Galilee was a dangerous threat to peace, their peace. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And those who passed by laughed at him, saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The Gospel of Matthew.
Deserted by his apostles, none of the twelve were with him at Golgotha. Only Mary Magdalene and a few female followers watched the crucifixion from a distance. While they grieved, others laughed and mocked Jesus. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For Jesus, the end came mercifully soon. The Gospels say that the crucifixion began at the third hour, about nine o'clock in the morning. By early afternoon, Jesus was nearing death. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Gospel of Mark. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The Gospel of Luke. By modern reckoning, Jesus died at three in the afternoon on Passover Friday in the year 30 CE. Even after death, the horror of crucifixion did not cease. Roman crucifixion was intended to be a form of state terrorism to scare the lower classes for whom it was usually reserved against any type of subversive activity. So the body was usually left on the cross it was more or less consumed by, by prowling dogs, wild beasts, crows, vultures, if there were any around. That is what made crucifixion horrible. We think of it as, as being very, very painful, but the Romans did not calculate pain. They calculated shame. And to, to not give the body burial really annihilated the person in the ancient world. Jesus of Nazareth would not be annihilated. The Gospels say that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich and influential man who admired Jesus, asked Pontius Pilate for his body. Pilate allowed Joseph to take Jesus' body down from the cross. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn from the rock rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. The Gospel of Matthew. When Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus in his tomb, he thought he was alone, but he was not. Mary Magdalene and a companion had followed him from Golgotha. They watched as Joseph laid Jesus in the tomb. The Gospels say that two days later, after the Jewish Sabbath, the women returned to the tomb carrying spices and ointments. They planned to prepare Jesus' body for eternity in the grave. Suddenly, they were hurrying back to Jerusalem, bursting with joy and trembling with awe, running to tell the disciples of something which would forever change the world. The Resurrection.
after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospels say that in the weeks following his crucifixion, Jesus of Nazareth appeared several times to his disciples. But each Gospel gives a different version of these appearances. Matthew writes that the disciples saw Jesus on a mountaintop in the Galilee. Luke says that Jesus appeared near Jerusalem, where he walked and ate with his disciples. Mark and John tell of his appearing in different places to different disciples. But in all four Gospels, Jesus' followers at first refused to believe that their master could return from death. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, said, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. But Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The Gospel of John. After Jesus' death, his followers eventually emerged from hiding with the strength and faith to continue his mission. Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus, found courage and carried on his teacher's work. So did Jesus' brother, James. Others joined them. Only 20 years after the crucifixion, about the middle of the first century, St. Paul's famous letters revealed that the movement Jesus founded had already grown far beyond Galilee and was winning converts wherever it spread. By the time of Paul, we find Christians sort of spread throughout the Greco-Roman world in little cell groups that they call assemblies, and they appear in every major city in the Roman Empire by the middle of the century. And by the end of the century, it's a, it's a major force that the Romans have to begin to reckon with. There are places where the economy has been impacted because there are too many Christians that the pagan economy built on the worship of other gods simply isn't functioning anymore. By the middle of the third century, uh, it's become such a powerful force that it's really in competition for the soul of the empire. The emperor himself is converted, and Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire within a matter of 300 years after the death of Jesus. Jesus incarnates a dream, a profound and ancient dream, deeply embedded in the human spirit for a world of radical justice, radical equality for a world not of domination, but of empowerment. And above all, for the announcement that that is what God, that is what the holy and the sacred 
is concerned about, not about domination, but about empowerment, about a world of justice. That is the permanent abiding legacy of Jesus, and as long as that dream is alive, Jesus is alive. It is one of history's greatest ironies. The mighty Roman Empire, which crucified him, would one day come to worship the young stonecutter from the Galilee. Certainly, on that day long ago when Jesus died, no one could have foreseen that, as the centuries passed, millions of people around the world would come to embrace his spiritual vision. Must one know all the facts of Jesus' life to believe in him? Of course not. But then one can't help but want to know more about a man whose life in some way has touched all of us regardless of faith.